Welcome again to Hiawatha. We're glad you're here this morning. So I bet you didn't know when you came to church this morning that you'd be witnessing some WrestleMania. <laughs> now I won't ask who actually saw this when it was first broadcast back in the day. I confess I did not. The only WrestleMania match I've seen, not at the time, only years later, is the one between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant, which is great. But that doesn't really have a lot to do with the sermon this morning. So, if you look in your worship folder this morning, you'll see the name Spencer Peterson. I am not Spencer Peterson. My name's Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha. And Spencer is actually sick this weekend, which is why I am preaching this morning. So, um, an unexpected privilege this morning to preach. So... Uh, this morning, you are going to see an epic wrestling match, one more epic than WrestleMania, the original wrestling match, thousands of years before this one. You're going to see a wrestling match between God and man, physically, not some metaphorical wrestling, wrestling match, but you're going to see Jacob, a character that we've been following for the last few weeks, wrestle uh, either God or an angel, depending on which commentary you read. Uh, and out of this, we will see that Jacob's character is changed forever. So, we are currently in a series on Genesis, working through the book. Typically at Hiawatha, we preach through books of the Bible, and we start at the beginning and go to the end, which is great to see the narrative flow. Sometimes it's awkward when you have those passages you wish you could just skip over, and it's like, well, we'll just skip this chapter. It's really weird or uncomfortable, or we don't really know what's going on, but we preach through whole books of the Bible. Fortunately, this week is not really one of those passages. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the passage. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, that it is not just words of wisdom uh, or words of historical interest, but words that are alive, that your word is actually alive, which is a really cool thing. God, we pray for Spencer this morning that you would be healing him and that uh, you would quickly bring his body back to health. Uh, pray that you would be with me as I preach this morning. Amen. All right, so some quick review. We've been talking about Jacob. He is one of Abraham's sons. He was chosen by God. So God made these promises to Abraham and covenanted with him and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to bless the entire world. I'm going to bless the entire world through you. You're going to have this certain land. And those promises originally made to Abraham are then passed down to his son Jacob. And so uh, we've seen that in the last few weeks. Last week, we saw Jacob being rescued from being oppressed and threatened by his father-in-law. So Jacob goes to this guy named Laban, sees his daughter, decides to marry his daughter, but Laban actually does a little switcheroo and gives Jacob the other daughter of his, not the one he wanted. So he wakes up the morning after his wedding and there's a woman in bed who is not the woman he thought he was going to marry, but that woman's sister. And it's like, you're not the woman I wanted to marry. What's going on? And Laban's like, oh, well, we can't give away the younger daughter till we give away the older one. So just work for me another seven years and I'll give you the younger one too. And Jacob's like, all right, I guess. So Jacob ends up with an extra wife and seven extra years of work. And now, so it gets to the end of that time and Jacob wants to leave. He's got his family. He's got all these flocks and herds. He's become not super wealthy, but wealthy enough 
uh, that he wants to go off on his own, but Laban doesn't want him to go and is kind of just saying and doing things to keep him there and kind of oppressing him, threatening him a little bit, and then Jacob gets away. And we see that God actually rescues Jacob from that and works it all out. It's a pretty cool story. If you want to hear more, listen to last week's sermon online. And we see over and over how God continues to rescue Abraham and his descendants, how he continues to fulfill his promises to them. There are so many times where Abraham or Jacob just do stupid things, things that should totally destroy this covenant, either physically get them killed or the idea of offspring coming from Abraham, messing that up and having the offspring actually come from someone else. But over and over we see God uh, do course corrections and keep things going the way he wants to. So God is totally in control of what's going on. Now, Jacob inherited the promises that God made to Abraham. However, Jacob was not the oldest son, and those promises should have gone to Esau, the oldest son. So you might ask, well, how did Jacob get them? Well, he tricked Esau. He basically lied. Uh, he basically traded Esau's birthright for a bowl of soup when Esau was really hungry. And then later, he deceived his father when his father was old and couldn't see. Like, he put on these animal skins and had his mom make a f this food a certain way, which was the way that Esau would have made it, and basically lied and said, yes, I'm Esau, give me your blessing, when it was actually Jacob. So Jacob has these things now, but he got them in very underhanded ways. Very underhanded ways. Sinful ways. Uh... So, as you might expect, Esau was pretty upset about this. So he finds out about this, and he says, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. So after this happens, Esau says, My dad's getting old, and he's going to die pretty soon. And I'm not going to do anything to Jacob while he's alive, because, you know, that'll hurt him, and I don't want to do that and cause those problems. But once he's dead, once dad's dead... I'm going to come after Jacob. I'm going to kill him. I mean, he took all my stuff. This isn't right. I'm just going to kill him. Jacob gets wind of this and runs away and flees. And then you have a few chapters of different things happening and God leading Jacob in different ways. So that's all done. And God has rescued Jacob uh, from Laban and from the situation going on there. So Jacob is on his way again. He's on the road. And then we find out uh, that Esau's coming after him. And Esau sends messages to Jacob, messengers saying, hey, I'm coming to meet you. And that's all he says. Doesn't say why or what's going to happen. Uh, so Jacob is a little nervous about this. So today's passage, Genesis 32 and 33, we're just going to go a chunk at a time, so we'll read a chunk and discuss and read a chunk and discuss and work through it that way. So starting with 32.1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. So Jacob, knowing that Esau is looking for him and is coming, decides to proactively send messengers to Esau to tell him, hey, here's some different stuff that's happened. I was mistreated and kind of betrayed and deceived by my father-in-law, but I got out of that. And I didn't just come out of it with you know, the clothes on my back. 
No, I've got all this stuff. I've got these different animals. I've got different servants. I've got some amount of wealth. I'm kind of telling him this, and we don't know yet exactly why, but we're going to find out later. He's trying to kind of whet uh, Issa's appetite and say, like, I've got all this stuff. Maybe if you don't kill me, I could share some of it with you. And we could both be alive, and you could have more stuff. Maybe that would be a better solution to our problem. But look at the change in Jacob. If you haven't been here uh, for any of our Genesis series, then you won't really have that reference. But if you've been here and you've seen how Jacob has acted, and he's been deceived and he's been tricked, but he's done his fair share of that as well. And look at this change. He calls himself, when he sends the message to Esau, your servant Jacob. He calls Esau my Lord in verse 5. Look at the change. Look at the humility that's come upon him. No longer is he this arrogant guy who's just going to take every advantage he can, who's going to take advantage of people and trick them and steal from them. There's a change that's beginning to happen in him. So those are sent out. Eventually they find their way back, those messengers. The messengers return to Jacob saying, we came to meet your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, the camp that's left will escape. So he sends out these messengers, kind of this verbal bribe a little bit, gets this message back. It's like, yeah, Esau's on his way, and he's got 400 guys with him. Now that's bad news. You know, think about the time they're living in. Jacob can't just go to the local police and say, hey, you know, this stuff happened like 10 years ago between me and my brother and it was bad and I did some wrong things for sure, but now he's going to kill me. Can you guys offer me protection? No, there's none of that. He's out traveling. He's alone in the wilderness. And now Esau's coming and he's got 400 men with him. And this is not just, oh, Esau was coming with his family. No, he's coming with like a fighting force, his own kind of private army or militia. So probably he's not just coming to say hi and catch up on the 10 years they were apart. So Jacob is greatly afraid. He's distressed, understandably, right? He thinks that Esau's coming for him, that Esau's going to kill him, and there's really nothing he can do about it. He's kind of stuck. He doesn't have his own fighting force that can fight back. He's not by some town that he can go hide in. He doesn't have people around he can get support from, uh, other towns or rulers or nations. So he divides everything, thinking, well, some of us are doomed, but if I split everything in half, he'll attack one camp, and at least half of them can get away. So he divides all the people and all the stuff, all the animals and other things. So he does this, kind of doing his own thing. But then, look at what he does next. And Jacob said, so basically Jacob's praying here, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob kind of makes plans, takes some steps, but then look, ultimately what does he do? He turns to God. He turns to the only hope that he knows he has. He's not going to try to scheme his way out of this or deceive his way out of it. He turns to God. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you've shown to your servant. 
For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, now I've become two camps. He acknowledges, I had nothing. When I crossed the Jordan, all I had was the clothes I was wearing and a stick in my hand to walk with. And now look at what you've made me. I didn't do this myself. You're the one who did this. He says that God's shown him steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, I'm not worthy of that, but you've done it. And then at the end, what's he say? He reminds God of the covenant. He says, you said, I will surely do you good. Make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he turns to God, his only hope, and then says, remember what you promised to do. I don't see how that's going to happen in this situation. It looks like I'm about to die. But if you could do something to continue this promise and make this happen, that would be great. So he says this prayer again, showing some change that's happened in Jacob. The fact that he goes to God instead of trying to fix the problem himself. We've seen throughout Genesis, Jacob over and over has tried to fix problems himself and just made them worse. We've seen the same with Abraham. They try and fix problems themselves and the problems get worse. And then eventually, after they do that and it fails, they go to God. It's like, well, I tried to fix it myself, it didn't work. God, maybe you could help me out now. But here, what's he do? He goes to God first. He doesn't wait for Esau to come and try and fix the problem. He's like, nope, I can't do it. There's nothing I can do. Please help me. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Then he handed over to his servants every drove by itself. So each group of animals uh, is separated out, each of these groups that's going as a gift. He gives them to different groups of servants and says to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to my servant, to your servant Jacob. There are presents sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he's behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. So Jacob decides to send out these gifts. And he puts some space behind him, sends them one at a time. And so Esau is walking with his forces Uh, towards Jacob where he is and he's going to see these groups of animals and some shepherds basically herding the animals coming and say oh I see you got some nice sheep there who are you know who are you whose are these whose servant are you and they'll say oh actually these are for you from your brother it's a gift for you and he's going to do that here over and over and over with all these groups and hopefully placate him a little bit this uh makes me think of the chunk in the hobbit where they go to visit Bjorn who doesn't like visitors, and Gandalf has all the dwarves come in, just a few at a time. And so Gandalf is there telling Bjorn the story. And he ends up with like 15 people in his living room, but it happens a little bit at a time, and he's distracted by this other thing, so he doesn't really matter, so, or doesn't really mind. There's something similar going on here, where Jacob's trying to kind of butter Esau up a little bit and kind of uh, placate him a little bit at a time. Because, of course, if he just sends one little flock of animals, Esau's going to be like, no, you think 200 animals are a trade for your birthright? I'm going to kill you. And then I'll just take your animals anyway. You'll be dead. But he keeps sending them, and he sees 
this little bit of change in Jacob, this idea of generosity and sharing rather than stealing and taking. So he does that. And then the same night he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. So he sends all these animals out, has this plan, but then look at what he does with his family. He waits till night comes and then secretly kind of ferries them across the river. So you can see there's still fear here. He's still worried he might die. He waits until the cover of darkness so that if Esau would happen to get there sooner than Jacob thought he would, he can't see what's going on. So he's trying to get his family across the stream kind of secretly under cover of darkness. And then Jacob was left alone. And man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that's on the hip socket, because there he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So here we go, the wrestling match. Now you have to remember 2,000 years ago, epic meant something a little bit different. So biblically, this is an epic event. And you've got some tension here. Now we just read the whole thing at one time, and if you look farther in the passage, you know what the outcome is. But for this happening, Jacob's wrestling with someone all night. It's dark. Don't forget, they don't have artificial light. There's not street light. Maybe the moon was out, maybe it was cloudy, but he can't see real well what's going on. He might not know who this guy is. Is this Isa? Is this one of Isa's uh, 400 men? Like, have they found me? Are they on me? So we think, oh yeah, you know, he's worried he decided to wrestle, but no, no, no. He's probably fighting for his life here. He's probably terrified. He thinks he's going to die if he loses this wrestling match. So he wrestles all night long. And we find out that he's actually wrestling either with an angel or with God himself in human form. And it seems like he's winning, which is a little confusing. Uh, but we're not going to cover that today. That's outside the scope of the passage. So if you have questions about that, ask me later. And I'll say, I don't know, but here are some options. So there you go. But what happens? The guy touches Jacob's hip socket and like wrenches his hip out of joint. Basically, he dislocates his hip. You know? So how great would that be if you're like a professional wrestler to have that power? Like, I'm losing. Bloop! There goes your hip. And then, obviously, Jacob is now losing because of that. So this is kind of confusing. Uh, it's confusing knowing, okay, exactly why is this happening, what's going on. But, thank you, Internet, we found a picture which fully describes this, a historical photo right here. And the angel said to him, stop hitting yourself. But he could not stop, for the angel was hitting him with his own hands. <laughs> so there you go. Everything becomes clear, right? But no, um, and actually that's not even accurate because Jacob was winning, so the angel wasn't hitting him with his own hands. But, you know, it's funny to look at that and laugh, but there are a few things we do know. We know at the beginning, Jacob physically is very strong. 
But he's probably pretty terrified. He's worried. So emotionally and spiritually, he's pretty weak. And then you see at the end, what happens is hip is wrenched out of joint. So physically, he becomes very weak. But then he's blessed. And so spiritually, he's transformed and becomes stronger. And you're going to see this is like a tipping point in this passage when this happens. Before now, Jacob for sure was calling on God, but he's also making plans himself and doing stuff. He's like, all right, I'm going to send these animals out as this peace offering. I'm going to divide everything in half so at least half will survive. I'm going to ferry my family over under the cover of darkness and try and kind of hide what's going on with them. But now, physically, he's been very weakened, which is horrible when his brother's coming, right? Because now if they have to run... You can't run with a dislocated hip, and you can't really fight with a dislocated hip. So now, physically, Jacob's in trouble. Like, there's nothing he can do anymore. He can't stand against Esau. He can't really free, flee from Esau anymore. He's just kind of stuck. But we're going to see a spiritual transformation that started here and now continues in the rest of the passage. So, now chapter 33, here they come. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Joseph was Rachel's child. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So this is like the tense breath-holding part. What's going to happen? Here he is. He's got all the family behind him. And notice that he put, so Rachel was the woman he wanted to marry. Leah was the one he ended up with first. So notice he puts the woman and son that he cares the most about farthest back. So if something happens, they have the most time to escape. It's like, well, they'll come on the servants and their kids first and maybe kill them and they won't escape. But maybe Leah and Rachel will have a chance because they're farther away. And if they happen to get to Leah and her kids, well, at least Rachel and Joseph will probably escape. So, but he puts himself in front of all of them. He doesn't wait at the end. He goes first. He comes up to his brother and there's this tension. All right, what's going to happen? Is Esau going to run him through? Is he going to kill them all? What's going on? But look at verse 4. What happens? Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. So he, Jacob here is expecting revenge. He's expecting bloodshed. He's expecting death. What does he get instead? He gets peace and he gets forgiveness. Now a quick application aside here. So it's important to remember whenever we're in the Bible that the main character and the hero is always God and Jesus, never the human characters. So in this passage, as far as human characters, Jacob's kind of the hero. But ultimately God is the hero. And so in this passage right here, this is a great analogy to what happens with us and God. If you flip it for a second and think of Esau and kind of the God role, Esau is the one who comes and seeks out Jacob. Jacob isn't seeking him out. In the same way, God's the one who comes and seeks us out. And there's fear sometimes. People who don't know God might have a view of him that he's just going to come and strike him down or kill him or think, oh no, I've done things to offend God. I've done things against him. He's going to come get me. And so there's that expectation of violence, that expectation of bloodshed, that expectation of revenge. But what happens instead is verse 4. God comes to us, embraces us, kisses us, weeps for joy that he can bring us into his family. He brings peace and forgiveness. He brought revenge and he brought bloodshed on Jesus Christ at the cross. And through that, he can bring us peace and forgiveness even though we deserve revenge and bloodshed. What an awesome picture. And again, 
mainly in this passage, Jacob is the main character, but if you flip that for a moment, it's this really cool picture of the gospel. Really cool picture. And Esau and Jacob were brothers. They were already family. So for those of us in the room who are believers, we still feel this way sometimes. We still feel, oh no, I messed up. God's going to come after me. I better give him a gift. We probably don't parade out hundreds of animals for him, but we think, okay, I have to give him a gift. I have to do something to appease him. No. No, no, no. We just come to him. And he forgives us because of Christ. Christ is the gift he gave us. He doesn't need us to give him gifts. Peace and forgiveness, that's what he brings. So back to the story of Jacob and Esau. So there's this embrace, this weeping, there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation that's happening. And then Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children and said, who are these with you? Because remember, Jacob fled before he was married. So Esau hasn't seen any of Jacob's family. He hasn't met his wives. He hasn't met any of his kids. He didn't even know Jacob had a family. Who are all these people? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I've met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I've found favor in your sight, then I accept my present from, your hand, from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Then he urged him, and he took it. So Jacob links this reconciliation and deliverance from his brother. He links Esau's grace with God's grace. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. He just had this wrestling match with God. He had this wrestling match. God overcame him and then blesses him. Shows him mercy. Shows him forgiveness. Shows him compassion. Shows him love. Blesses him. Now comes Esau and the same thing happens. He comes not for vengeance, not for bloodshed, not to get his revenge, not to fulfill the vow he made to kill his brother, but to reconcile, to show mercy, to meet his family. He's excited to meet his family. And he accepts the gifts from Jacob, but at first he doesn't say, okay, I'll forgive you because you gave me these. He's like, no, I've got enough stuff of my own. Keep your stuff. And Jacob's like, no, God has blessed me so richly, I want to share that with you. And Jesus says, okay. Look at the transformation there in Jacob. A man who was a schemer and a liar, a thief, becomes a humble man generous who gives generously, even when he doesn't have to. Even after Esau says, no, take it all, I've got enough. We're fine, you don't have to do this to appease me. Jacob still wants to share because of what God has done. Seeing God has transformed Jacob. That wrestling match transformed Jacob. Jacob becoming physically weak, but through that blessing, increasing in spiritual strength because of what God gave him, has transformed who he is. And so it is with us when we come to Jesus Christ, when we come to the cross. God transforms us. He takes things we think are strength and shows how they're weaknesses. Paul says in Corinthians, the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength, and the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Whatever peace you bring here, 
that you think is a great strength or a great piece of wisdom that you can give to God to add to what he is or to add to what he's done? No. He's done it all. If you take the weakest part of God's strength, it's stronger than the strongest part of strength that any person or any group of people can ever show. If you take the wisest person who ever lived, other than Jesus, and you take the greatest pieces of wisdom they have, there's still foolishness compared to the weakest parts of God's wisdom and the most foolish parts of God's wisdom, because he's so much wiser. We don't need to appease God. We don't need to bring him gifts. We just come to him. Jesus did everything for us. Jesus gave everything that needs to be given. We just have to come and accept it. And God transforms us. He brings us that generosity, that humility, not in of ourselves, but through the cross. What is generosity in a believer? It's seeing the generosity Jesus Christ showed us on the cross. The generosity of giving his own life. It's being reminded of that and then through the power of God's Spirit being able to do that. Not just reminding and thinking, oh, that's a great example, I should do that. But thinking, that's a great example, but I can't do that on my own. And God says, that's okay. I can do that in you. I can do that through you. So we've got reconciliation. We've got the bringing back together of this family. We've got an awesome picture of the gospel and of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Then, Isa said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. So Isa says, all right, we've gotten back together. Come on, let's go home. I'll go ahead of you. You can follow. Let's go home. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows the children are frail and the nursing flocks and herds are a care for me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I'll lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. Then Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. He's like, all right, that's reasonable. Want me to leave some people? They can help you out, make the journey a little easier for you. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And now look, Jacob actually goes a different direction. He doesn't follow Esau. He goes to a different place. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And Jacob, came same, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elhoe Israel. So what's Jacob do? He politely refuses Esau's offer and then goes to a different place. And look where he ends up, in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, the land that was promised to him. He can't go with Esau because Esau's going somewhere that's not where God promised Jacob he would be. God promised Jacob certain land, but Esau's going to a different place. So Jacob can't go with him because that's not the fulfillment of God's promises. So in this very polite, kind way, he refuses Esau's offer and then follows God's leading and goes where he's supposed to go to the promised land. So that's the story of Genesis 32 and 33 in a nutshell. But like all the stories in Genesis, this story is a foreshadowing of the gospel. Jacob's story is really our story. And we saw two highlights of that already, but now we're going to look a little more closely at that. So Jacob's story is our story. God will come again in human form. So God comes in human form, wrestles with Jacob. But God's going to come again in human form. 
He's going to save his people from slavery, oppression, and death, just like he saved Jacob and his family from being oppressed or killed or enslaved by Esau and his fighting force. And in the process, he will rename them and make them instruments of blessing, not of cursing, and of reconciliation. Just as he renamed Jacob to Israel and has Jacob go to the promised land so that eventually he can be this instrument of blessing and reconciliation. The same thing is going to happen. So we're going to look at some New Testament verses to see how God accomplishes that. We're going to take this statement and break it down a chunk at a time and look a little more in depth. So first, God will come again in human form. He comes here in the passage, wrestles with Jacob, but he's going to come again. And we know that that happened at the cross. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus Christ becomes the physical image of God who is invisible. God the Father has no physical body, he's a spirit. He exists, but he has no physical form. Jesus Christ becomes physically a man, but he's still God. So he takes on human form. And the ultimate purpose of that at the end of his life is to die for our sins and then be raised from the dead. So he does that, as Philippians says, becomes obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Through that, he saves his people from slavery, oppression, and death. Uh, from Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why does God do this in this passage? Because he's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loves us. So just as God, because of his rich mercy and great love for Jacob, saves Jacob and his family and all his livestock from what could have happened, in the same way through Christ. God saves us from the fate that we deserve, from the fate of vengeance and bloodshed from God. He saves us from that. Instead, shows us mercy. And it's not our own doing. He does it. Just like in the passage, Jacob doesn't save himself. He doesn't wield a sword with two good legs and fight off that fighting force. He doesn't give them all these bribes after they have this long negotiation. And finally, Esau says, all right, I'll value your life at this much of your flock and your herd and I'll take that and then you can live and we'll call it good. No. Isa comes. Isa embraces him. Isa's glad to see him. That's God's doing. God does that in Isa's heart. God saves Jacob. Saves his people from slavery, oppression, and death. In the process, renames them. God renames Jacob to Israel. In the same way, when we become believers, God renames us. Galatians 4, 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We're no longer slaves, we've been brought into his family. 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you're sitting here and you're a believer, 
if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you have a new name, and that name is child of God. So for me, my primary identity now is not my name, Jesse Splann. It's not primarily in my family and the history that comes through that last name or in whatever people might think of me with my first name, who is Jesse, if someone asks. It's not primarily those things. It's not primarily in my work or in my family or in any other thing and any skills or talents I have. My primary identity now is that I'm a child of God. It's in Jesus Christ. Which is a huge blessing and a huge relief. Because if your identity is in something and that thing changes, then your identity has this kind of crisis. If my identity is in my job and tomorrow I lose my job, what happens to my identity? I lose part of my identity and now I've got this crisis of identity. If I have a wife and children and my identity is in that, and my wife leaves me, or one of my children dies, now does my identity come crumbling down because the thing I built my identity on has shifted? But if my identity is in Jesus Christ, if it's in being a child of God, God calls himself the rock, the rock that's unshakable and unmovable. It's an identity that will never change. It's an identity that will never fall apart. It's an identity that lasts into eternity. The greatest identity. So if you're here and you're a believer, rejoice because you have the identity of child of God, an identity that can't change, that can't be shaken, that'll never fail. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, think about the times in your life when you feel pressure because of how you identify yourself, where, where you feel stress, where you feel unease, where you feel anxiety because you feel your identity shifting and changing and it worries you. Jesus Christ is a rock and an identity that never fails. An identity that never shifts. An identity that never lets you down. An identity that never says, you're not good enough, change this. Or you're almost my child, but not quite. And it's available to everyone. Just like with Jacob, you don't have to send God a bunch of gifts. You don't have to say certain things. You don't have to go through some class here or anywhere else. It's just the acceptance that, yes, God, I've done horrible, evil things to you. And I can't fix that myself. But I don't need to because you fixed it for me and all I have to do is accept that. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to be a Christian. And finally, make them instruments of blessing, not cursing, and of reconciliation. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God has changed us. It's not just a change of identity, like crossing out a name and writing a different one on a piece of paper. It is that for sure. It is fully that. But it's also a change of holiness and blamelessness. The passage from Ephesians said, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Because of the transformation God brings to us, we are able now to walk in that path that God has chosen for us and that he continues to lead us on. It's not like he changes us and says, All right, go walk the path, good luck. He's like, No, I'm still walking with you. I'm still the one doing it. But now we're able where before we weren't. There's that transformation that now we can be instruments of blessing and reconciliation rather than cursing. In our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, here with our brothers and sisters in Christ, as all of us are God's children now.
So that's how Jacob's story is our story. So what's the application for us? Two main things. One, know who God is. Know who God is. Know that God is the one who saves. That God is the one who brings reconciliation. That God is the one who sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus is the one who died for your sin so that you can get a new name. So that you can get a new identity. So that the sin in you can be washed away. So that you can be called God's child instead of his enemy. So that we can come to God expecting mercy and forgiveness instead of vengeance and bloodshed. Know who God is. And then second, live out your new identity. If you are here and you know Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have a new identity. You have been changed. We have been adopted into God's family. Ephesians 2 says, in that identity, there are good works God's prepared for us, for us to walk in. Live out that new identity. Don't live out those works to gain that identity because you already have it. Just like a child who's adopted into a family, assuming it's a healthy family with parents who are loving, the child then hopefully doesn't think, well, now I have to do a bunch of good things so that they keep me in the family and love me. No, that's not how adoption works. You adopt a child that you love knowing that they're not always going to do what you want, knowing they're not always going to be loving towards you, but you're going to love them anyway. And you're not going to love them because of what they do and don't do. The love you have for them transcends that. The same with God's love. So know who God is and live out your new identity. And if you're here, for all of us, but especially if you're here and you don't know Jesus, maybe you're hearing this for the first time or you've heard it before and just don't believe it, or maybe you are on your way to believing it and still have questions or whatever it is, know there is a true and better Jacob. Jesus Christ is the true and better Jacob who wrestled with sin and wrestled with death and defeated them. He didn't just wrestle a man and defeat him. He wrestled with sin and death and conquered them. And invites you to share in the benefits of that conquering through him.